Hello and welcome back. Welcome to Bombafo, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast. Welcome to the new season, the 2020-2021 season. Try and spit that one out. My name is Lee Roden. I am with Alexandra Jonsson. As always, it feels like an eternity since we last spoke, but I'm pretty sure it's not that long. (laughs) (laughs) It's been so many football matches played since we last talked. I know, it's absurd. There's, There's this gap between these two seasons now, which is almost nothing. I mean, it's like paper thin. And we're already back into the, the second season. But that's not really the most important thing today. The most important thing today is that we are here to explain and start our new season, our new format of Bombatho, where we've decided to make things a little bit bigger, a little bit better, and a little bit differently focused. And I'm pretty excited about it, man. I don't know about you. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be, be really fun. Uh, and I think it's going to be some quite high quality uh, things we will be able to produce now. Yeah, so that's the thought. So last season we were doing week by week constant updates on everything that was happening and that was wonderful because last season we had so many stories related to Scandinavian players in La Liga. I mean, Alexander Isak at Real Sociedad, Martin Odegaard's breakthrough there and subsequent return to Real Madrid, Martin Brathwaite moving to Barcelona, which we couldn't have imagined, Daniel Vaz and the whole collapse at Valencia and Pioni Sisto going missing for <laughs> extended periods of time but that is not something that necessarily is going to happen every season the stars aren't going to align like that and we figured that to freshen things up to make things more interesting and to make things more unique as well something you won't find anywhere else we're now going to focus on once a month going deep on a particular topic relating to Scandinavians in La Liga getting expert opinion, getting interviews hopefully too with uh, people around the game and in the game and really digging in and extracting some details that you either didn't know about or you might have forgotten about. Today, we're starting at a natural point. Would you like to tell everyone who we're beginning with for a very obvious reason? Well, if there was a video in this where there isn't, I would do this, which only Lee can see right now, but it's me showing up <laughs> Henrik Larsson shirt from Barcelona the season 2004-2005. I'm very confused here. We are going to... <laughs> dive deep into the one and only Henrik Larsson and his time at Barcelona as a player and then a little bit of of what's going on right now with him in Barcelona. Should I tell the truth? We've been talking about doing this episode since last season, really, and I'd already started researching it then. I don't think either of us could have guessed in our wildest imaginations that we would be sitting down now, what, October 2nd, 2020, and Henke Henrik Larsson would be on the Barcelona coaching staff. Am I crazy here? No, not at all. I mean, we, as you say, we've been talking about doing this episode basically since we started uh, doing Bombasa from the start. It, it's like nothing that we had planned because he ended up at Barcelona again. And I think that was never in the plans for, for us, at least. So it's, uh, that's actually a cool coincidence. And it shows that maybe we did the right decision with waiting to do the, the episode uh, until until now. Fortune favours the lazy, as the old phrase goes. So we're not going to dive in too much on Henke as a coach right now. We thought it would be much more worthwhile to cast our mind back to his time as a player because everyone, look, everyone knows who Henrik Larsson is. Everyone knows his name. Everyone knows he played for Barcelona. But one thing that we noticed is that, and I think this is a, a consequence of the time that he was there, where it was just before this sort of boom and YouTube football clips and social media football commentary and sort of minute by minute information from leagues that are not your domestic league and your respective country. And my my feeling is, and I think you agree the same, that when people think about Henrik Larsson at Barcelona, basically it tends to be boiled down to, oh yeah, he was amazing in Paris against Arsenal. He changed the Champions League final and he, gave, he provided two assists that, that sort of won the game for them. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. He was at that club for two years and 
my impression at least is that's pretty much all that you really hear now when it's spoken about. I don't know if you agree, man. No, definitely. It's it's of obvious reasons as well that you, you remember that final and the, the impact that he had in Paris. But that was just the very last thing that he did at Barcelona. Uh, by that point, he had already managed to have an insane impact uh, for the age he was in, also for being out for almost an, a season with an injury of those two seasons. Uh, so that is just like a very, very little part of what Henrik Larsson at Barcelona was and, and why he turned out to became so respected and, and loved in Barcelona. Uh, but but obviously that's what you remember because it was it was a different time back then. Exactly. And we're going to pick all that apart, like what's remembered, what's forgotten, what some of the standout moments were apart from Paris that people have maybe overlooked. And more importantly, what the people who were there at the time think. And we've found three amazing experts who witnessed this firsthand, um, who witnessed it all in detail, were there to watch his journey at Barca from the start to the end. But before we get to all that, uh, I wanted to start with our... Henrik Larsson journey, if you like, because I think for both of us, he's a player who kind of holds quite a big significance in our lives and as our, in our time as football fans and then as football journalists. So I'll give mine in a second, but I want to know, Alex, what are your sort of first memories of Henrik Larsson? Where does it start for you? Well, so, you know, the, the saying of not no, like what came first, the hen or the egg. So in my life, it's what came first, number seven or Henrik Larsson, which I have no idea. Uh, because I've always played with number seven uh, since I was started playing football when I was five years old. It was super important for me to have number seven. And Henrik Larsson has always been my big hero. And I can't remember the first time I discovered Henrik Larsson or the first time I wore number seven. So I have no clue if I wore number seven because it was Henrik Larsson's number or if I started liking Henrik Larsson because he wore the same number as me. I just, I just simply don't know. Uh, but basically my first football memories is of, of watching Henrik Larsson in, in the national team. And it's not of, of discovering him or anything like that. It's of being completely obsessed with him. Um, I remember the, the World Cup in, in 2002 when I was, I, I was about to turn eight years old uh, or something like that. Uh, and Sweden got a free kick against Argentina um, and it's Henrik Larsson and Anders Svensson standing next to the ball to take this free kick and I remember like it's yesterday sitting there in front of the TV and thinking when Anders Svensson starts running towards the ball why the heck are you taking it it should be Henrik Larsson and then obviously Anders Svensson scores the most incredible scores an incredible free kick goal knocks Argentina out of the World Cup and Sweden win the group of death and it's one of the best football moments uh, in my life but I was that obsessed with Henrik Larsson already then that I, I got angry in that millisecond that he wasn't even the one taking the free kick. Uh, and then basically, I, I say that, normally say that every, every, the answer to every question when it comes to me is Henrik Larsson. Why, why do you like Span Spanish football? Henrik Larsson. Why are you a journalist? Henrik Larsson. Why, why do you read stuff? Henrik Larsson. And everything in one way or another can boil down to the, the reason why I started doing something was because of Henrik Larsson. See, I think I can stick my neck out here and say that if there's one place that rivals Sweden in terms of how big an icon Henrik Larsson was, it's Scotland, and in particular the west of Scotland where I'm from. Um, because, I mean, I, I can't overstate, so I'm I'm from just outside Glasgow. My, my mum's a Celtic supporter, my brother's a Rangers supporter, I'm neither. So I was kind of always neutral on this. But my, my memories of Henrik Larsson is when he came to Celtic in 1997 from Feyenoord. And for me, it felt like he was there forever. He, he wasn't, but he was there fairly long. I think it was like seven years, maybe. Um, but he 
is more than just a, a player in my memory. He was this like cultural icon. I mean, in Glasgow, you could not avoid the image of, of Henke Larson at that time, um, especially in, in particular, like when he had his, his dreadlocks, that was like the, the signature iconography, if you like. He was everywhere. And also, I mean, you have to remember, I, I guess it would be a similar thing in, in Sweden at the time. In the west of Scotland, it was a pretty boring, not a particularly multicultural, not a particularly exciting place in the 90s sorry if i've offended anyone that's just my memory of it so then you have this super cool looking guy with these um, like amazing hair as an amazing footballer and it was just like this explosion of like energy and excitement for for a kid i mean i was seven when he joined i was super young so that's like my first my first big big memory is just of someone who is like way more exciting than your sort of average image or person that you would see in your every day-to-day life in in scotland my second and third one the second one which i think we're going to touch on later with our first guest but i actually remember vaguely anyway um and this is not scientific but i remember in his early days at celtic him being fairly criticized you know it's that everyone remembers Hink is this sort of Celtic icon, but it didn't go perfectly for him straight away. So I remember the sort of vague feeling that there were some doubts about him in the beginning. Obviously, look, this all all of that is long forgotten about for most people because he went on to become I think it's safe to say in the modern era, at least the, the sort of post Lisbon Lions era, probably the the greatest player ever to play for Celtic, or if, if not if not the greatest, certainly in contention for that title. And then the the third one that stands out is his leg break. He had a horrible, horrible leg break when he was at Celtic. Um, and I remember being traumatized by that, even not as a Celtic fan, just like the, the feeling of it. it was terrible. It was the first time I remember even understanding that football players could become injured and like seriously injured and, and miss out on a lot of games because of it and have to go through the horrible sort of rehabilitation process. Um, <laughs> and then the final one, which is kind of funny because I guess I was a young teenager, so I would have been... I'd have been like 15 when he moved to, to Barca. I very distinctly remember him when he he played for Barca coming back to play against Celtic and scoring. And I remember, I think it was either my mum or my dad uh, when he scored against Celtic, legitimately saying, no, he shouldn't have done that. He should have put that wide. He shouldn't have put that uh, that ball in the net. That's terrible. That's terrible. And I was like, but, but that's his job. And they were like, no, no, it doesn't work like that. And at that moment, I knew that I thought about football differently. <laughs> to a lot of people so maybe that's like the starting point at which i was like hey maybe i could like this whole like neutrality and like thinking about things scientifically think could be a job for me i don't know i'm I'm probably reaching a bit there but yeah that that whole period is very much ingrained in my memory and it is for anyone who lived where i lived at that time whether you were a rangers fan or a celtic fan i think a lot of if not all rangers fans sort of even begrudgingly admitted that this guy was pretty damn good so now i think it makes sense for us to to segue to our first guest who like me is scottish like me has worked and and lived in barcelona and around uh, spanish football for uh, a number of different media outlets but if anything he's gone on to define it when i was a kid this guy was basically the only source of information on Spanish football live from Spain. Uh, Graham Hunter, who we are lucky enough to call a colleague and a friend, uh, he's going to let us know some of his memories of Henke Larson, starting with when he first saw him, which was when Graham was just about to leave Scotland, but was still working in Scotland at the time, and, and Henke signed from Feyenoord. And then he'll go on to talk about his transition to playing for Barcelona uh, and what that meant for him personally as a, a journalist working out there in Spain at a time when it was pretty hard to to forge a living as an English language journalist working with Spanish football. So here's what Graham has to say. Gol de Larsson, el tercer, el jugador suec, però que no vol celebrar, ja ho va dir. Va dir que si marcava contra el Celtic de Glasgow per respecte a l'equip i a l'afició. I was reporting Scotland 
when he arrived from Feyenoord and I interviewed, I was part of a group of four or five guys that interviewed him in his first week. And then Henrik played for Celtic. I think it was against Hibs, I think. And um, he didn't make the best debut. If I remember correctly, he, he made a big mistake, like maybe gave away a penalty or an own goal. But I've been speaking to people um, in Eredivisie football when he signed from Feyenoord and people told me that this was a really um, interesting player, a guy with um, attitude and ability. So I wasn't too worried in the first game. Then I moved to London immediately and I guess I followed him from a distance. Um, and when he signed for Barca in 2004, um, I was really excited because it was clear at Celtic that he'd become a high-class, world-class footballer. Um, it was also clear that for loyalty, for enjoyment and for a really clever bonus that his agent, Robbie Anson, had built into the contract, he got a very big financial thank you from Celtic if he stayed to the end of his contract. It was clear that by then he'd stayed too long in the Scottish leagues, not at Celtic, their big club, but in the Scottish leagues where it was it was obvious that he was a guy with the ability to do much bigger things. So there was a lot of um, speculation in the months leading up to his end of contract about where he would go and not a lot of hard information. When it turned out that, that Barca had made the move and won the argument really quickly, um, I was really pleased because at that stage I'd only been in uh, Spain for two and a half years. Um, I wanted to have more uh, points of contact in the Spanish game where I could build relationships. And I guessed I could probably do that with Henrik. And it was a way for me to increase the regularity of contact I had with my friends in Swedish football journalism. So when he signed, given the fact that I was living in Barcelona and given the fact that I genuinely believed Barcelona were bringing a new mentality to the squad, I was delighted. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable that he played nearly 60 games. Maybe if you include some friendlies or some Catalan, Catalonian Cup, maybe over 60 times for Barca. And I still think it's remarkable because what happened was there were several remarkable things. You know, he arrives having been team leader and Celtic team leader in Sweden for years. And what happens is that he, he makes runs, movements, elite quality leadership movements on the pitch that where had it been for Sweden or Celtic, he'd have been given the ball absolutely immediately every time. Instead with Barca, it was in an era where both, well, not, not both, all Xavi, Eto, Ronaldinho were like, well, I dictate what happens. I'm the boss of the ball or I'm the boss of movements or I must get the first pass. And I don't think in the case of any of them, except for Eto, it was jealousy. I saw Eto as not initially, on the pitch anyway, trying to help um, Henrik Larsson very much indeed. But certainly what happened was Henrik was making movements 
where normally he'd have been the first point of thought, the first first point of vision, the first point of use of the ball, and he wasn't being responded to because even then, even in the early stages of the renewal that was going on there, long before Guardiola took over, it was still a special club. The movement of the ball was still special. And what happened was in the first Clásico of his time at Barcelona, where Barcelona won really easily 3-0, his leg injury, I think it's a broken bone in his leg, means that he's out. He comes back training early in in late March, early April, and starts to play again in May, beating all the medical prognosis about how quickly he could be back. But the first point that makes it what he did at Barcelona special was that he, he watches exactly how Barcelona playing while he's getting fit again, getting he's healing and getting fit. And by the time he comes back, he knows exactly, exactly how the system works and he knows exactly how to play in it. And that was evidence of a brilliant, brilliant brain as far as I'm concerned, because many players look at the Barcelona, the old Barcelona style, they don't play it the same way now, but many players looked at it, admired it. Slatan is one who looked at the Barca game, thought that's for me, admired it, came and he couldn't handle it. So I say um, that was one part of the magic. The second part of the magic was that whenever Larson started or came off the bench, he always made something happen, whether it was a goal or an assist or whether it was just confusing and tiring the opposition players. His level of attitude, his level of energy was something that Spain wasn't very used to in those days, I don't think. People watched a guy who was like, whatever my role is, I'm going to give maximum, I'm going to show complete energy, commitment, winning attitude, and it was really refreshing. I remember being at Camp Nou in the season 2005-06, and especially when Henrik came off the bench, the roar of people seeing him coming out to get stripped off, coming on, the Camp Nou adored him. They roared at him, possibly. In that era, he was the second most loved player after Ronaldinho, which is extraordinary after playing half a season the, the season before in his debut year because of injury. And they, the, I've never seen a crowd take to a foreign player like that quite so quickly with so little impact of time to see him with the possible exception of Messi and maybe Ronaldinho. All right, so Graham very kindly provided us with all of those awesome memories and details about Henke's time at Barcelona, finishing with how he ultimately became adored, if you like, by the Camp Nou crowd, how much they they grew to love him. Alex, I want to ask you something. Is it a normal thing for you, considering what part of Sweden you're from, to have grown up loving Henke Larsson? Because there's some conflict there, right? I'm a huge Malmö fan. I, I grew up just outside of Malmö, where everyone su- supports Malmö FF. I went my first ever football match was to go to, to Malmö Stadion. Um, and Henrik Larsson is from Helsingborg. Uh, he's the biggest icon uh, of Helsingborg in the history of the club. Uh, they have a statue of him uh, and everything. And in Malmö's biggest rival um, in, in sense of hatred is and will always be Helsingborg because it's the, the closest rival they have, even though they're not much of a rival these days. Um, uh, so 
Mom FF supporters don't really, they, they even have a song that, that goes that there's only one Larson, Busse Larson, which is uh, a Mamma legend who, whose name was Busse Larson to just showcase these kind of things. So as a Mamma fan, you shouldn't really be a Henrik Larson supporter. But the, the thing is that uh, I discovered Henrik Larson when I was so young that I didn't understand these things yet. Like I, I, I don't even know if I discovered Larson before Malmö or Malmö before Larson. Um, it's so early in, in my childhood that I, I just simply don't remember. Uh, but but Henrik Larson has just become, or really early became such a huge part for me uh, and for my life. Like I said, with number seven, everything. When when I was playing football, I, I wanted to be like Henrik Larson. Um, I would go down in our basement where we had our computers, uh, or my brother is a computer geek, and when he wasn't there, I would go on his computer and I would find videos of Henrik Larsson because back then we didn't even have YouTube, uh, and, and Henke was playing for Celtic, and he also, when I was old enough to, to start to understand football, what it was, basically, he was already off, off uh, out of Sweden, so I don't even know if I understood he was a Helsingborg guy. Uh, so I was watching videos and videos um, somewhere on the internet of Henrik Larsson. A lot of them in Scottish, which I think is one of the reason I have never had a problem understanding Scottish people. Um, they're often very surprised. Graham, I remember first time I met him, he was like, how the heck did you understand everything I said? Uh, but I think it's because I watched so many Celtic videos online, even when I didn't even speak English. Yes, because it was about Henrik. Uh, and then when he signed for Barcelona, that was huge. It was huge for me because that meant I could watch him play. Because as I remember it, at least we didn't have the channel that showed the Scottish leagues. I would only watch him with the national team. So when he signed for Barcelona, that meant I was going to get to, to see Larson play. And I remember like it was yesterday, the first game. It was a game against Racing Santander, away game, um, with this away shirt that I have here. Not specifically that one sadly. Uh, and, it, and he started on the bench. And I remember sitting with my dad in front of the TV. Uh, like That was the first time I watched a La Liga match in my life. Uh, and that's the day I fell in love with Spanish football. Uh, and from there it went outwards, uh, or downwards or upwards or how you want to say it. And in school, I had a notebook, which when the teachers didn't look, I pretended to work. But in that notebook, I wrote down everything about Henrik Larsson's career. Uh, every goal he scored, uh, when he broke his when he broke his leg, I wrote about that. I like went on the computer and found pictures, uh, printed them out and cut them and put them in in this notebook. And like that's what I did during school. And before th I always said that I hated writing. I hated writing in school. When we ever ever we had like any uh, any lessons or anything where they told us assignments you have to write, I hated it. But at the same time, I was doing a book about Henry Carson. So I, that, that is also when like looking back, I think it's that already then I started to get the interest for journalism in, in that way. Uh, I found like that's how you could make school fun is to, to turn stuff about it into football. So in, in all of those ways, it, he's had such a huge impact. Like I don't know what I would be for person, what I would be working with, where I would live if I had not had Henrik Larsson when I grew up. I think like it's, it's worth really focusing on this point for, for maybe, I mean, the people who are around about our age will know, but I guess we probably get a lot of listeners who are a little bit younger. This, even though it doesn't seem like that long ago, even though it was like 2000, the mid 2000s almost, I guess, 
this was such a different era in terms of just like how much exposure you would get to a league that, that wasn't your domestic league. I mean, okay, in Scandinavia, the Premier League, you've always had quite a great deal of that. But in general, I think in most countries outside of Spain or outside of Spanish language countries, there wasn't, you know, constant updates. You didn't have like minute by minute updates on what was happening with every footballer through their own social media accounts because those didn't exist. Um, you didn't have tons of uh, tactical analysis of each player. You didn't have YouTube clips where they're broken down into like a frame by frame details. You didn't have, I mean, even, and that's for international people, even if you uh, you lived in Barcelona and you were going to the camp now every, every weekend, okay, you, you were maybe seeing them play once a week, but, you know, you were mostly relying on once a day getting sport or Mundo Deportivo, and there's a limited amount that you can put in that little print newspaper, you know? Um, if something happens after a certain point or the cutoff or there's not enough room in it, it's not in there. So it's not like today where those those uh, outlets have websites that everyone can read in, in extensive detail. They would have had a site, but it would be pretty basic. Um, and they don't have, uh, certainly don't have English language, uh, didn't have, sorry, certainly English language versions of them. So there really was, I mean, we, we were kind of relying on, I, mean, I don't know what it was like in Sweden. I would imagine it would be similar. And we're about to get to this with our next guest, actually. You were really relying on foreign correspondence, basically. So someone from your country who was out in Spain or out in Barcelona in this case, who would either be writing for one of the newspapers back home would be sending columns back where you would get like some kind of update about the player in question or would be going on TV like Graham, who we just heard from, who for everyone of my generation from the UK is the guy who used to be the man in Spain, if you like, like on Sky Sports, who would give you the updates and tell you that this has happened in training and that's happened. But, you know, again, still, it's still a pretty small sample considering all of this whole ecosystem of football that we now see today is so extensively detailed, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that season, because Henrik Larsson signed for Barcelona, uh, they started just showing the Spanish league on Swedish TV. Because that was also one of the reasons I had never seen Spanish football before, because it had not been on Swedish TV. I think it had been at some point previously when there had been some Swedish players there, but, but not when I was growing up. Uh, so it was huge in that sense as well, because then suddenly we got got Spanish football and then suddenly we got coverage of Spanish football in the newspapers as well. Uh, well, mainly of Barcelona and Henrik Larsson, but something that, that maybe was not to the same extent previously. Uh, and one of our, our, our next guests was, uh, was one of those people that made sure that we got that, which is uh, the, the fantastic uh, journalist Johanna Garo, who, who went down to Barcelona quite a few times when Henrik was there and, and did very valuable uh, coverage for us Swedes who, who all were very excited to, to have him at such a big club. So now we're going to, to get some of uh, Johanna's views on, on what that was like. He really liked coming to Barcelona. He loved the weather. Uh, he loved the slower tempo. He liked to sleep in in the mornings. The club was uh, like a big family, he said, in the dressing room. They made him feel very welcome. Even though he didn't speak uh, Spanish very well, he um, he learned. And he, I mean, a few of them spoke English. And then he had you from Bronkhorst. And he said he used his body language to make them understand. And uh, now he, sp he speaks decent Spanish. So, so he learned uh, after a while. And also he told me that um, him and his wife in the beginning, they, um, I mean, we eat earlier in Sweden. We have, we have dinners earlier. So he told me that they went to restaurants at like nine in the beginning and they were the only ones there. So it's like a little bit of a culture, culture shock there. I guess they got used to it later. 
And he also said that he wasn't used to playing football at 10, uh, at, 10 at night. Uh, but he, he really liked that too. It was, of course, big news in Sweden when Barcelona wanted uh, Larsson. And the fact that actually they got him. The expectations were everybody knew that he was not going to be a starter. Um, the, the Barcelona team was was massive back then. But we also knew what we could expect of him. He would he would work hard and uh, take his chances. So and he had just uh, done a comeback to the Swedish national team and played uh, Euro two thousand and four. So he was really we were um, happy to have him back in the national team and he performed really well in Portugal. So um, uh, we knew that he had the level that he would be able to perform in, in Barcelona and, and do really well. And back then, the La Liga was on a, a free channel. So most people had possibility to watch him every week or the Barca, the Spanish league on, on TV4+. Plus. It was uh, huge for us to have a, a Swede, big Swede in the, in the Spanish league. My favorite memory from Larsen's time at Barcelona, I think it is the, the roar, like the, the Larsen, Larsen. That, that greeted him. Uh, that was actually fantastic. But other than that, I have a favorite uh, memory from the training ground. I don't know if you remember, but they used to train next to uh, Camp Nou, uh, a small pitch there, where you could just stand and watch watch their trainings every day. That was fantastic. I loved it. You could just tell that they had so much fun. And then they would actually walk about 50 meters to the Camp Nou and the dressing room. So you could uh, speak to them or uh, ask them for a future, for an interview in a few days or whatever. So I really liked it. And I I loved uh, Ronaldinho. So just watching them train was fantastic. You know, them playing um, football tennis and stuff. And one day, Ronaldinho was having fun with the ball. He, uh, I don't know how really to explain this, but he took the ball on the chest and uh, it um, bounced up in the air, like, I don't know how many meters, 10 meters? Well, something like that. And then again, he took it down on his chest and up. And he did that like 10 times in a row. And then Larson was going to try the same thing. And he was like, <laughs> once, and it just went off. So he couldn't even do one. And then you realize what a fantastic uh, magician he was, Ronaldinho. All right. So that was the wonderful Johanna Garro with her first-hand memories of seeing Henke Larson playing for Barcelona, Henke Larson training for Barcelona. I mean, she mentioned actually something there, a detail that a lot of people maybe don't know. And I, I just caught this when I was starting to be a journalist, which is when Barca quite literally used to train right next to the camp now, next to the old uh, Masia building. That's unthinkable today. Now, like, they're out in San Juan Despi and it's all, you know, high fences and it's almost like a fortress. You can't really get in there and see them apart from that small 15 minutes training that you get to watch where they basically do nothing. But when she was there back in the day, I mean, you could quite literally just walk up to the players. I don't know about you, but, like, I, I dream of something like that where I could just walk, to, walk up to a guy... Uh, you know, like a, a huge talent, a huge superstar like Henrik Larsson, like Ronaldinho, and just ask them for an interview at, alongside watching them train. It's unthinkable for us, right? Yeah, I actually think it was Guardiola who changed that at Barcelona when he came uh, in as a coach and moved them from training just outside. There was this pitch that was just behind La Masia. So for anyone who knows where La Masia is outside of Camp Nou, there is now a parking lot behind there instead. Between La Masia and the Camp Nou, where 
where pitch where where the first team used to train uh, and i know that that xavi said at some point that when he was a youth player when he was at la masia he would go and stand by the fence he's like watch the the big guys train and i think that was something quite special that that you had that that those kids living in la masia now xavi wasn't living in la masia but other kids that, that were could just look out the window and there was the first team training outside um, but Guardiola changed that because he, I mean, which is also understandable because how the world changed and, and everything, uh, how, how the media coverage changed as well, that you, it's hard to have a team uh, at a club like Barcelona being so public. Uh, you need to kind of have your secrecy if you, uh, in, in the way football works today. So it's kind of understandable, but, but it, it's at the same time a bummer because it's uh, such a special thing that, that you could do that, that you could basically walk by Camp Nou and there. They're the first thing was training is in front of you. Yeah, and I think it, it ties into this whole theme that we keep coming back to in this episode, how in a way, you know, Henke's time at Barcelona represents something of a different era, even though it wasn't that long ago. And and really now thinking about it from what you've just said and, and thinking about the whole, how it all links together, really he's at the tail end, like the very end of that time where there was something still a little bit more innocent. I mean, Barca were a huge club, but well, as our next guest has uh, mentioned to me as well when I was talking to him, you know, at that time, there wasn't that big a difference between Barca and Celtic, for example, you know, that both of those clubs were still, okay, Barca were were more successful still in the on in the recent memory in the European stage, but there, there wasn't a huge gap. There wasn't the same amount of money in football as there is now. There wasn't the same insane amount of media coverage in football as there is now. There wasn't the same kind of distance between journalists and players and between fans and players as there is now. So so Henke, uh, I suspect, will notice quite a difference now that he's back, actually, compared to the Barca that he left way back in the sort of mid-2000s. So yeah, we've, we've had the perspective now of two incredibly insightful and really, really interesting people who watched Henke closely before he moved to Barca and when, when he was there. Now I wanted to move and get the perspective of someone from Barcelona or from that, from Catalonia itself, who maybe didn't have the same deep, deep, deep understanding of him or the deep kind of baggage of him before he came to play with Barca, even though actually, to be fair, this guy really knows his world football. So we have to keep that in mind. Tony Padilla of Diari Ara uh, of La Liga TV too as well if you watch the La Liga TV English service but for me he'll always be of Diariara which for me is they've got like the best uh, sports section of all the newspapers or the sports uh, newspapers in, in Barcelona they do amazing tactical analysis amazing deep investigative journalism and amazing world football stuff as well and, and Tony's a big part of all of that he's a huge football geek um, so it's no surprise to me that he had plenty of thoughts about how Henke was at Barca, had plenty of quite detailed memories about his time there. He talked to us about how Larsen played at Barca versus the way he had plays for or played rather for Sweden or for Celtic and then moves on to the expectations of the Barcelona fans when he joined the club which I was surprised about, actually, because I don't think this is remembered so much. Actually, there was quite a lot of hype for, for Barca fans uh, about him joining Barca at the time, which I, I didn't remember. I don't think he's really talked about as much in Spain these days. And then finally, he also moves on to something we're going to touch back on, which is what on earth his job now, Henrik Larsson's job is going to be. Now he's back at Barca as a mysterious kind of assistant coach. So here's what Tony had to say. Confirms the Barcelona win. This manages to spin away, doesn't he? Beautiful finish from Henrik Larsson. Perfectly weighted over the goalkeeper. Ivan Laporta as the president and Frank Rijkaard as the manager. The second year with Ronaldinho Gaucho. But the first season 
wasn't the perfect. Uh, it's true that Barca beat the way Real Madrid, but they weren't able to win a single trophy and everyone understands that they need someone to score a lot, of, a lot of goals. So that summer, that's why they signed Enric Larsson and also Samuel Otto. Samuel Otto will end as one of the best top goal scorers in the history of Barca, but at the moment he was playing for Mallorca. So not everyone understood that Otto was the right man. And Enric Larsson was the opposite, a player with a lot of experience, Everyone at Canova Stadium has uh, seen with his own eyes how all the Celtic fans that travelled down to, to Barcelona understood that Enric uh, Larsson was the King of Kings. So it was welcome with the hope that he will be the right man to score a lot, a lot of goals. In fact, that season, uh, I think to remember that the, the shirt that was sold in the, in the shop of Barca with the name of the back, it was uh, that one of Ronaldinho, and then the second one was one of Enric Larsson. So it was a lot, a lot of uh, uh, expectations with, with Enric Larsson. Well, since since the preseason, it's true that Samuel Atto showed that he was ready to be the the main goal scorer at Barca, but Enric Larsson would played also really good football. So I remember at the time that it, some people talk about the fact if they could play both of them together in the same starting eleven, or if the Larsson has more experience of Atto or that he was not so anarchic after Cameroon, the, the, the player from Cameroon, that it was so wild that sometimes it was unable for his teammates to understand the way he was playing. But I think that, that since the beginning of the season, everyone understand that the, the right man was Samuel Eto'o and that if Larson was also this kind of player that can change the games in the second half or they can play in the Spanish, in the Spanish Cup games or no, on other La Liga games. It was difficult to fight against Samuel Eto'o because he became one of the best friends of Ronaldinho Gaucho. He was loved by all the Barca fans since the beginning when he scored against Real Madrid. It's true that everyone remembers him here at Barcelona as this goal scorer, that he was the best inside the box, connecting headers, and not as a player with a lot of imagination. Well, it's different things to understand that. One of uh, is trying to understand how Barca played at the, at the moment. Uh, with a young Lionel Messi, young Andres Iniesta, with Xavi Hernandez, uh, with Deco also as a midfielder. It were players that occupied all, all, the, all the positions when Barca were under attack and that push Enric Larsson inside the box where he could make the difference. It was different to play, obviously, with the Swedish national side or with Celtic, where he has more freedom to show that he was a creative player than doing that at Barca. Also, he was getting older, obviously. He wasn't the... The young player with Rastas that scored a lot of the goals in the 1994 World Cup, although that he became a cool hero at Celtic at Celtic for a, a lot of seasons. He was getting older. It was obviously that that episode when he was injured against Real Madrid. So he understand that he should adapt his uh, football style to a new reality, and that's why maybe the perception that Barca fans have of Henrik Larsson is not the same that other fans have around the wall of him because the version they saw at Barca was a player that was able to make the difference inside the box. Everyone is looking forward to to what will be the, the job done by Andrew Larson inside the team. It's, it's really hard to be uh, someone like Larson and try to teach Messi or, for example, or Griezmann or these players how to attack because they've been one of the, the best players in the history of, of the game to do it. So also, I think that also one of the ideas to have someone like Larson is that will allow them to learn how to manage a big team. And also that you have inside the dressing room someone that's been important in the game, in football at Barca, and that also gives a, a different position for example, we have to remember that the most part of Barca fans, when they talked past season with Kike Setien and his assistant, Eder Sarabi, they understood that they didn't do nothing in the game, despite the Kike Setien used to be a player. 
good player, but he never won a single trophy. Another Sarabi obviously was the son of a former player, but he never played. So the most part of Barca players talk to other Sarabi like saying, you are no one, you never won a trophy, you never played in the top flight. This, isn't, this is not the case with Andrew Larsson, so I understand that talking with uh, with him, it will be different. He has experience, he's been there, he's been in the dressing room, he, he won a lot, of, a lot of trophies, he scored a lot of goals. It can be also a good way to have someone inside the dressing room that can understand the players and that maybe can help Ronald Koeman. All right, so I want to touch just quickly before we move on to, to Henke as a coach. I wanted to ask you about this. I didn't realize that, that Barca fans were so kind of like excited about but Larson coming to the club because I feel like now, in hindsight, he's not really remembered as being a sort of big signing for them, more like just this kind of backup player. Or have I, have I got it all wrong? Is this just my bias? No, but I, I think you're right. But like trying to 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 think back to it, like remembering what his presentation looked like and everything like that. I I do think that at that time, a lot of people did understand that Henry Larson was a really really good player because he. He had just been at Celtic longer, probably than than what what would have been best for his career. Um, he could have left Celtic much earlier to go to to bigger clubs. Um, and I remember that when he was leaving Celtic, it everyone first thought that he was going back to Helsingborg. That that was that was the the plan. That was and a, then the feeling in Sweden, at least. Yeah, what, what I can remember. And then he he went to Barcelona instead, which is quite quite different. Um, but so so the I, I don't know, but I think that Henrik Larsson had done so well both at Celtic and winning the golden golden shoe, uh, which is yeah, very difficult when you're in, especially when you're in a, a league that is is not one of the the top top ones. Uh, and then he had done really well at the World Cup. So I think it's it was a player that in Spain they already knew was was a top top player. But, but as we, we've been talking about as well, he was quite old when he arrived at Barcelona. Um, so the question is, what were the, the expectations really? And obviously I can't say that because I was a 11-year-old in Sweden when this happened. Uh, but I think that there's no doubt that when he, by the time he left, he was extremely adored uh, in Barcelona. The, the way uh, when, he had his, when he had his speech... Uh, at Camp Nou before he left was I, I remember watching that and it was just incredible the the amount of love that he got and also today being a Swede in Spain you get to hear about it all the time and what surprised me is that it's not just in Barcelona like in, in Barcelona Barca fans loves him but all over Spain it's more usual at least for me that when I say I'm from Sweden they start talking about Henrik Larsson rather than talk about Slatan, which if you go to any other country probably not Scotland, but most other countries, and you say you're a Swede, they just want to talk to you, to you about Slatan. Well, I mean, like like Tony said, and I didn't realise this, and this kind of ties into your point, that his shirt was the second most sold shirt in the Barca shop behind Ronaldinho. I mean, that's that's insane. That's insane. Like, remember, this is a team that had that Eto, for example, who was an absolute superstar, who had homegrown players who were already big, you know, growing superstars like Xavi, for example, like Puyol, had Deco, who was another, like, massive superstar at Barca, Henke Larsson, who was only there for two years, was the second highest selling shirt at the time. That really says something about how popular he was. And, you know, 
that can't all just be Swedes and Celtic fans. Like, there has to be a lot of people in Spain because, you know, again, it wasn't so easy to order a shirt from Barcelona and get it shipped to another country at that time. So that's that's people in Spain that are buying that shirt and snapping it up to that degree. And that really speaks volumes, I think. I think it's a huge, huge statement about what he achieved there in such a short period of time. He was at a later stage of his career then. And he had been playing, as I think, you know, all of our guests have pointed out, he had been playing for clubs and countries where he was a main man everything went through mm-hmm. him so for him to come to Barca and to adapt his game and really completely change his game in a lot of ways so successfully at that stage of his career there's not many players that do that not many players who go from being a huge fish in a small smaller pond if you like that far into their career come to a club as big as Barca and just have the humility to be like okay uh, I'll change how I play if it's going to help the team and if it's going to make things better for me I mean there's very very few people I can say that about and I think that's one of the reasons why he's so loved because people see that they see this this player who's achieved all of these things and he comes to Barcelona and he comes there to assist, to help, to be, uh, n- not be the star, but being someone who, who helps the other players be better. Uh, and always with this incredible attitude that he has, this humbleness. Um, and he's just a person that everyone seems to, to, to really, really like. And especially those who, who get to know him. Like if you you look in, at interviews with him and things like that, he can seem quite boring uh, sometimes in the way that he answers questions and, and things like that. But uh, when when you see him in another environment or when you talk to people who who know him in another way, he's really funny guy. He's he's a great guy. He's someone that that people just really want to be friends with. And I remember at Barcelona especially, he seemed to get this special connection with uh, with Xavi Hernandez that it was like after he had left Barcelona um, Barca were playing a game or something in Sweden um, I don't think it was a game where Henrik was playing but he was there to uh, to give out a prize or something like that and and Xavi sees him and Xavi's face just completely changes uh, and he's like goes straight up to Henrik and gives him like the biggest hug like he wouldn't <laughs> don't won't let go uh, and it's like the way there's like this photo of the two of them just the way they're looking at each other uh, it, it's as you say like find someone that looks at <laughs> looks at you the way Xavi looks at Henrik Larsson uh, is what I would say well actually yeah but a couple of things you said there are important to pick up on one of them I think maybe some of our Swedish listeners will be hearing about this like you know, dynamic, like excitable guy and being like, really? I don't, but I, I actually, it's weird because I have the same experience where I think I, and for, for whatever reason, I think there's maybe an obvious reason to do with the tabloid press in Sweden. Henke Larsson's way more of an extrovert when he's not in Sweden than he is when he's in Sweden. Like the way he, he speaks and the way he interacts with the media in Spain and certainly the way he did in Scotland. Like when you hear him now when he does the odd interview for Scottish uh, media, for some reason he has a better connection with those people. So I think, the way that they view his personality is quite different to maybe the way a lot of people in Sweden view his personality. And then the other point that you made about Xavi, I mean, the other thing that stands out that I remember from then was that Ronaldinho called him his idol. And this is Ronaldinho. (laughs) Ronaldinho. And for people who don't remember, again, this is by far the biggest player on the planet at the time. By far the biggest player on the planet. And he's like, oh, I'm excited. This is this is my hero that's coming to Barcelona. He was genuinely excited about him being then. So I guess that tells you something about the sort of positivity that he brought to the club when he came there and the excitement. Although one thing I did learn from Tony, because and we're now going to seamlessly transition onto the final point, when we were trying to figure out 
what his role is going to be now as Ronald Coleman's assistant coach because there's really very little information or much detail about it. One of the things I thought, I was like, well, I guess he played with a young Lionel Messi. Maybe it's like a something from the club trying to get through to Messi. But I think what Tony said was that actually that time, in part because of the language barrier, because, you know, Henke left with okay Spanish, but he, he didn't go there with any. Um, and, and Lionel Messi doesn't or didn't at least speak any English that would be difficult for them to communicate. And then the other thing was, and I think it's easy for us to forget, that at that time, Messi was part of the, as, as Tony said, the sort of Ronaldinho and Deco crew, the sort of partying uh, crew at Barca. Henke Larson was somewhere different in his career at that point and was much more mature and, uh, you know, living a quieter life with his wife and his family. So if he's not there to get through to Messi, then, I mean, what was what did you think when you saw that he, he was returning to the club? What did you think his role was going to be? Did you have any clue? Uh, I was very surprised uh, by the appointment of, of, of Larson. I think it, from, from my point of view, it feels like it has more to do with uh, Ronald Koeman and Henrik Larsson having a, a good friendship um, and, uh, and Koeman trusting him uh, and thus wanting him and his uh, coaching staff. Because as both you and I know and, and anyone who follows Swedish football when it comes to, to coaching, it has not gone very well for Henrik. He's been uh, at Helsingborg at two different times and it both times ended in a, in a really, really bad way. Uh, as well with a uh, relegation. So in, in terms of coaching, he has not done anything spectacular to, to grant him a place <laughs> at Barcelona. But at the same time, that is another completely different thing is to be a head coach and to be one of the people in a coaching staff. So maybe this will suit him better. But it's just an interesting move and a very surprising move. And then from my point of view, as someone who, who really likes Henrik Larsson, really cares about him, and knowing what Barcelona is right, right like is like right now with uh, with everything going around going going on um, with the new presidential election coming up with it being so chaotic um, and someone who's still kind of new in in the coaching business is there a possibility that it might hurt him even to go there and as we also been talking about it's a completely different Barcelona now to the Barcelona that he was uh, it's a completely different environment. It's a club that's done on 180 in the way they run things and how they do things compared to what they did back then. Back then, they were almost like a small club in the way they were, but they were a big club. Uh, well, now they are running things <laughs> as, uh, as the big, big clubs, as a business in a completely different way than they were then. So it's a lot of things that are different. Um, but I still think there there's... Maybe it's something that will suit him a lot better than being a head coach. I think it's very difficult to say, um, but it's definitely a surprise move, I would say. Yeah, I, I share your concern. I did have, I, I do have, and I did have some of that worry because, I mean, as we've learned, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how, how big you were as a player, how big you are as a, a coach, no one is immune from getting burned at Barca right now. It's, it's a difficult, difficult environment. And there's going to be a lot, and there has been, there's going to, there continues to be a lot of collateral damage from that. So that's definitely a concern. At the same time, I kind of felt like as an assistant coach, for the most part, he has not very much to lose from this. I mean, like you said, his, his first couple of coaching jobs, like as an, as an amateur level coach, and then with a really small club in Sweden went okay, and it was kind of promising. And then, but then the Helsingborg thing derailed both times. Um, in a lot of ways not to do with his own fault in other ways sometimes to do with his own fault in terms of bad decision making maybe especially when he went back there um so 
th- th- there's there's obvious questions, but then, like you said, perhaps it works out better for him as an assistant. Also, perhaps it works out better for him at a club like Barca, where I mean, let's not forget, this was a world class footballer, a world world class footballer, and I, I do imagine that not in all cases, but sometimes when a world class footballer who's maybe one of the bigger fish from a smaller country goes back to coach in their homeland. It must be difficult sometimes when you're dealing with players who, for the most part, are a much lower level than you were. And, you know, you're trying to explain something to them and you're saying, well, we'll just do this. And they maybe don't get it. or Maybe it takes them 30, 40 attempts to get it. Or maybe they're just incapable of getting it. And, you know, sometimes maybe you feel like I should just put my boots on and I can do it for you, you know. So maybe in a way being a, at Barca is, is a better environment for him in that regard because he's surrounded by players who are of the standard that he was or better in some cases. I mean, the only explanation we've really gotten, I think, in the in the local press or the Catalan press, and I don't know if this is also just to do with a lack of details, is that he's there to be a striker coach. And I'm like, well, OK, he's there to be a striker coach. Is, is he going to be coaching Lionel Messi? No. He's not going to be telling Lionel Messi how to shoot. Is he going to be coaching, and for all that has been difficult for him at Barca, World Cup winner Antoine Griezmann? No, he's not going to need any coaching on how to shoot. I mean, is he going to be coaching Philippe Coutinho, who again has played at a super high level? Probably not. So then then it really only leaves the younger players. And I mean, judging by what we've seen of Ansu Fati in, in recent weeks, I'm not sure he needs many tips on how to put the ball in the back of the net either. There's a, there's a big question mark for me. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to see beyond the fact that he and Ronald Koeman share agents, beyond the, the fact that he, he has a past at Barcelona, you know, what is this going to turn out to be? What's his role going to turn out to be? And the only thing I hope is that it works out for his best. And hey, there are examples that you don't necessarily need to, because you were an assistant at Barca once doesn't mean you won't be again. Uh, an obvious example is Juan Carlos Ansué, who was an assistant multiple times at Barca. So, hey, maybe if this goes well for Henke, even if there's a change upstairs, a change of coach one day, maybe he'll be back there one day because he's proven to be useful. But I hope so. We're crossing our fingers, right, that he doesn't get burned by this. Yeah, 100%. And I think one point that you de- made there that is is very one that you always should keep in mind when it comes to coaches is that some coaches suit a lot better with a top team than with a smaller team and some it's the other way around. So one coach could potentially be a coach that can win Champions League trophies uh, with with a huge club. But if you put that same coach with a team in, in Tercera División, he, he's going to completely fail because different coaches, because different type of teams and different levels, you need different kind of things out of a coach. Uh, and as you said, someone who has all of that experience that Henrik has from a higher level, it can also be really frustrating when you come down to a smaller club where you don't have the same kind of things, the same environment, the same stuff that, that will help you out in, in, in different ways. And, and you think in another way than everyone else does, and they are not on the same level as you. So I think you have a very, very good point there. And then obviously, it's a completely different thing to be an assistant coach, which is someone who's more there. He's not the like main assistant either. He's one of the assistant coaches who's more there to help out, come with uh, ideas and advices and stuff like that, than being the main man, the one who gets all the pressure uh, and is do- making all the big decisions. So I think I actually think it's it's a position that suits him a lot better than being a head coach. If he's going to work out, if he's going to uh, be really good at it, we don't really know. And exactly what his job is there, I think it's really hard to say because, as you say, I'm not sure if it really is being the striker coach in the sense of of of, uh, of teaching his players to get better because they are really, really good. You're at Barcelona. Um, but 
he probably has a lot of things uh, that he can can give advice on because he's, he didn't have the career that he had out of luck. Um, so he he likely have things to give. Um, and the the question is more like how how long he will get to be there, how long it's going to last, because we don't even know if the presidential election is going to be in March or if it's even going to happen earlier because of this vote of no confidence that is going on right now. And in that case, there could be a change of coach very soon. And the talk about that as well is that if Victor Font, for example, becomes the president of Barcelona, he wants Xavi in as quick as possible as a new coach. He's been very vocal about that. And we just talked about earlier the connection between Xavi and Henrik Larsson. Would, would that even be possible that if Xavi becomes a new coach, he decides, well, you know what, Henrik, you can stay. We, we don't know that either. Like, does it mean that he leaves just because they changed the coach? Or will he stay? Or will it give him possibilities in the future? Um, I mean, I understand that he did not turn this job down. I definitely do understand it. The question is more like, what are the reasons behind the job? And if it's going to work out, we simply don't know. Everything's possible. Hey, uh, for those who don't remember, Zinedine Zidane looked a very, very average coach in the lower leagues with Real Madrid Castilla and it turned out to work out quite all right for him (laughs) at the highest level. I, 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 I think he's a very good example of a coach that is really good in a big club because he's really good at handling egos and stuff like that. But a coach that maybe doesn't really work in when you go down uh, to lower divisions. So it's it's very different. Then you have other coaches who can be incredible um, in the lower divisions, but as soon as they put it under a bit more pressure, it, it doesn't work at all. Sometimes it's about the environment too. Um, all right, well... I guess we should probably think about wrapping up now. I don't know about you, but I've very much enjoyed this little trip down memory lane. It's also, for me, I've learned some stuff that I didn't know already and that's super useful and hopefully everyone that listens learns something too. Uh, it's been pretty pretty enjoyable to, to look back on this time of my life when I wasn't quite an adult yet and wasn't quite as cynical about football, you know? Well, it's always really enjoyable to, to speak about Henry Clarkson. Everyone knows that I, that I enjoy that. Before we wrap up, if you guys enjoyed this and if you guys like the the new format, if you could please tweet us at Bombathopod and let us know your suggestions for some of the topics, the players and people that you would like to, us to do a deep dive on this season. Um, nothing's off the table. Any suggestions are welcome whatsoever. I know that I certainly have a few in the back of my mind. Um, also, aside from that, we have a few hopeful interview candidates over the season in the back of our mind too. It should be a good one, man, right? I, I really think so. I, I really like this this new idea. It's going to be uh, be less episodes, only one a, once a mo- month, but I think they're going to be a lot better, a lot more quality, and they're going to be timeless. It's going to be episodes that you don't have to listen to the very second they come out, but you, you can listen to them when, whenever you have time. Um, so I think it's going to be good in, in a lot of ways. All right. And something different. Indeed, something different, something you can binge. Well, in honour of the great man, I guess the only thing to say then is to say Hado, right? Hado, Hado. Buenas noches, Tutum. Sí, es el último partido aquí en casa. Está muy contento con los jugadores ahí. Para mí es un placer jugar con este equipo, este entrenador es... Muchas gracias, gracias. Eh, Visca Barça, Visca Catalunya.